Isn't it fun that we have so many things to celebrate and be thankful to God for this morning? I think it's just so cool to have that as a, a focal point of our morning. Uh, my name is Jesse. If you don't know me, I'm the youth pastor here at Central Heights, and we're continuing our series entitled Great. And what we're doing in this series is we're working through the great commandment of Jesus working towards the Great Commission from Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 22, where we enter this scene where Jesus is discussing a couple of things with some very strict groups of people from the Jewish religion, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is what happens in one of these moments. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. We want to camp out today on the word mind. Because I think we have this idea in church that that loving God comes from only a place of our affections and our emotions. And maybe you sit here sometimes and you go, you know, I don't get teary-eyed when I see a baptism. I I don't feel like physically responding in worship. Is there something strange about that? No, there's not something strange about that. Maybe you operate more in a cognitive, mental capacity, and you need to know you can love God from that space. You can love God with your mind. In fact, we are commanded to love God with our minds. Maybe you're sitting next to people and they're kind of different from you and you've kind of been wondering like, okay, is, is there something that, that I need to be doing differently? Like, it seems like, you know, my wife's a feeler, I'm a thinker. Like, this is my case. You know, like, I'll be watching a TV and we'll watch a, you know, a, a commercial about Disneyland and I look over and my wife's like got tears in her eyes. I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, well, look at the, the, the kid is looking up at the mom. They're just so happy to be there. And I'm like, I, you know, I wonder how fast Splash Mountain gets. Um, you know, like, I, it's, we're just different, right? We're wired different. But God is saying, hey, you can love me with all of your capacity, not just the affections and the heart, but the mind as well. And what we want to unpack is this big idea this morning that loving God does not require leaving reason. We don't need to abandon our intellect. We don't need to shut off our mind when we come to to faith. We don't lose logic. We have a rational worldview And our God invites us to love him with our mind. And that's what we're going to spend time discussing this morning. So would you join me as we start with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this space you have blessed us with, the freedom you have blessed us with. May your word uh, transform my heart and all our hearts as we seek to know more about why we can love you with all of our capacity, especially our minds this morning. Thank you for being a good and great God worth celebrating, worth discussing in this way. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in high school, I wasn't really a troublemaker, but there was a a particular moment uh, in my grade 10 year where a friend of mine and I, we were were headed to French class right after lunch. So it's right after lunch, not a good uh, setup already. French class also not really helping the case here. My friend looks at me and goes, hey, let's just skip today. And I was like, whoa, like, I'm, I'm, uh, that's weird for me. I don't, I don't do things like that. What would my parents think? But, you know, I was like, 
yeah, you're right, we should. Let's just skip today. And I was like, what are we going to do? Because we know we have gym class later. We don't want to just leave the school. Like, where are we going to go? And he's like, well, we're going to go to the band room. And I'm like, the band room? Yeah, because that's where the cool people go when they skip class. Let's go there. And uh, so we go there, and, and we, ha- you know, we got to know the, the band teacher fairly well in our high school years. Uh, even through our middle school years, we had done a lot of extracurricular you know, practices and gigs and kind of went away on trips and stuff. So we kind of become friends with the band teacher. So you know, we show up there. She doesn't really question you know, the fact that we're skipping class. And she's like, hey, guys, like, I found this really funny picture of my husband the other day. Uh, it's from his driver's license, when it, like, his first driver's license. Now, her husband was also on staff at the school, so we're like, oh, this is cool. Like, this is going to be, like, interesting. Let's go find this out, because he's kind of this big, tall, six-foot-five kind of robotic guy who goes around and just, you know, is kind of, you know, cold and mean or whatever. We didn't really care for him that much. We liked her, but not so much him. And uh, we're like, okay, well, let's see this picture. So she pulls out the driver's license, and, and we look at the picture, and it wasn't one of those pictures, and maybe you have this if you're older, where you look back and go, oh, man, my better days were behind me. This guy's were not behind him. Like, his best days were definitely ahead of him based on that photo. And we're like, this is just, this is what this guy looked like. And unfortunately, smartphones weren't invented, so we couldn't make a new sticker on Snapchat or anything. Uh, but we were just really, like, like, laughing about this. And she's like, hey, you know what would be really funny is if more people could see this photo. And, and, and my buddy and I look at each other and we're like, we think we could make that happen. And uh, we're like, so like, we know there's, 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 there's this uh, a photocopier and, the, and this printer in the library. And she's like, yeah, okay, take the driver's license, go to the library, and, and just blow this thing up, and, and it'd be just really funny, and, and just put it all around the school. And we're like, okay, let's do that. And so we, we go there, and we don't have a lot of trouble sneaking around, because remember, everybody's in class. Like, it's not hard. We're just going to wander there. We're just going to go in. And so, you know, we start, you know, printing off copies, and it was, was kind of one of those moments, you know, where you, you make some copies, but you realize, you're like, oh, I don't think we needed this many copies. But anyways, we just got to take them all, and we start going out there, and, we, you know, we find some tape. We find a Sharpie. We're taping these things on the wall where we're embellishing the photo a little bit, like, I think he needs a little bit of gangster sunglasses here. Let's put that one there. Uh, he needs an, a pirate's eye patch. Let's put that one there. And we're just going all over the school with this, and uh, eventually we're like, okay, uh, it's about to be a break because we were skipping a double block. And so I was like, as soon as everybody leaves class for the break, this is going to be so funny because they're going to walk out into the halls and there he is. He's going to be everywhere in a really embarrassing fashion. This is going to be hilarious. And so it was, right? It was hilarious. Like everyone's like, whoa, look at that. And we'd put some up really high places and he's a tall guy. So eventually we notice him going around and just like, oh, I'm going to get those kids. Oh, there's another one. And he's just walking through the school with all these papers and just throwing them in the garbage and burning them and stuff. And and we're like, okay, like maybe to cover our tracks, let's not return to the scene of the crime. Let's not go back to the band room because you don't do that. Uh, we're going to go actually now and, and finish French class and maybe make up some excuse like we were late from lunch or something. And uh, so we go in there. Within the first two minutes of us being in the class, who shows up at the door but him? And we're like, this is, this is getting a little scary here. Uh, and then he looks at me and my friend and goes, you two outside now. And we're like, what? Look, shredded us out. Look, how did he figure this out? Uh, to make matters worse, our whole class is like, whoa, this is a big deal. Because not only was he on staff at the school, he was the vice principal of the school. Right? This is what happens, kids. Don't give in to peer pressure. It starts with skipping class and it ends up pranking your vice principal. Don't do that. And it's like, you know, why do I tell you this? Because how did he figure this out? You know, we were standing there. And, and, you know, he's, he's going off about, like, the big consequence was, like, you know how much this costs the school for all the copies? And we're like, okay, that's a weird response. Uh, you know, very professional. And uh, we're like, so he must, have, he must have done a couple things, right? 
He must have investigated because there's no way he knew it was us. He didn't see us do it. Nobody really saw us do it. We were very sneaky. He was busy. He was somewhere else. How did he figure this out? When you're like, well, it probably wasn't that hard. He went, okay, only one person has that photo. It's my wife. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to find her. I'm going to figure this out. He goes to the band room. Hey, what's going on? These pictures are everywhere. Who did this? Well, you know, there's these two guys. Uh, I gave them the license. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to take that evidence. And then, he, you know, what else he could have done is like, okay, so they must have printed some copies. I'm also going to go to the library. I'm going to ask the librarian. Oh, yep, it was these two guys. Th uh, they were there. Uh, you know, then he'd be like, okay, which classes are these guys in? Okay, they're in French class. Goes, talks to the French teacher. Okay, yes, they did skip class. Therefore, all the evidence from the band teacher to the librarian to then all the way into the French class, he's got all these different pieces of data which lead him to conclude plausibly that we did it even though he didn't see us do it. And this is what we can do with Christianity. We start with this big worldview, this belief that says Christianity is true. But how do we back that up? How do we love the God of Christianity with our minds, with our intellect, from coming from like a whole rational approach? And what we need to be doing is gathering data and, and doing two tests on that data. This is what uh, apologist Ravi Zacharias talks about. He talks about you can do the test of correspondence and the test of coherence. So the band teacher uh, is one of those uh, sources of, of information, so he needs to make sure that the facts he gets from her about us pranking him corresponds to reality. Same thing with the librarian, same thing with the French teacher. Does what I'm finding out actually line up with what is true? Does it correspond to reality? That's the first test. But then with all these three pieces, what he needs to then do is, is are, are these things fitting together coherently? Do I take each piece and when I put them together, do they work? So do they correspond to reality, and do they work together as a whole? And for him, they both passed the correspondence test and the coherence test, therefore he made a conclusion. And for us, this is what we can do with Christianity. And it's what we're going to do this morning in a very uh, intense, uh, kind of deep dive way. And so we're going to need to buckle up a bit because what we want to do this morning is unpack three massive categories of evidence that both correspond to truth and work together coherently to allow us to say Christianity is true and I can love God without shutting off my mind. So let's say we were to build a court case or to present something uh, interesting in front of a judge or a jury. Uh, you know, maybe we would do an investigation like a detective and we would start pulling out case files. We would start, you know, mounting evidence maybe in boxes. So in our first box this morning, we've got the box of history. And in history, it's a pretty big box. You could go through a lot of different case files. You could pull stuff about biblical events. And maybe this morning, all we want to do is pull out one case file and the most important case file, which really should be our starting point for talking about loving God with our mind and having a rational, reasonable faith, is the resurrection. The fact that Jesus really existed and came back from the dead. This one for me is, is the one that matters the most. And there are 11 different things I want to unpack under this because all of these 11 correspond to truth and work together coherently to form a very airtight case. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 writes this. Uh, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And he outlines four things we want to highlight here. One, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Second, that he was buried. Third, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Fourth, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Four claims. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. Four things that Christianity says, hey, this is, this is, these are intellectual, investigatable, uh, observable things that you can test out. So when we test them, what happens? If this is in our case file, what happens when we do these things? And I want to highlight 11 for us. Number one, we find that Jesus really existed and he really was killed. Pagan, Greek, Roman, Christian, Jewish historians, any serious historian will say this. He really existed and he really died under Roman rule. Uh, and you could go through all the, the, you know, the high degree of psychological stress that's recorded, uh, the chemicals released in the breakdown of, of his bloodstream, the flogging of 39 lashes with, with the, the, the torture he went through, the crucifixion event itself. Uh, there's no way that he could have survived the cross. So number one, he really existed, really was killed. But then we move into more than just that, that he was buried. So number two, Jesus was buried. We have uh, sources both from the New Testament and others that say, okay, well, we kind of know who uh, actually, the, the, which tomb it was uh, and wh where they borrowed it, how they found it. Uh, number three, though, which is more interesting, is that his tomb was found empty. And historians all agree on this, even if they don't make the same conclusions about why that's significant. But we need to have that in our tool belt as well. Number four, Jesus' dead body was never found. So if, if we've got an empty tomb and no body with that, then we need to start coming up with some explanations, don't we? But if we just stopped here, we wouldn't have a Christian faith because this alone is not enough. The conversion of Christians in the first century was not based on just an empty tomb of a buried, uh, tortured individual, but actually on the appearance of a risen Jesus. Which is why, number five, we look at some other things where he was raised and seen. Number five, Jesus' cowardly friends became courageous martyrs. Meaning they started as fearful people and, and moved past the event of Jesus' public humiliation and death to then die for a belief that said he was alive. Now why would you be cowardly and then shift your position when it's harder to hold that position? It's just really strange. Furthermore, number six, Jesus' other followers believed in him. We, we hear about 500 that, that came and appeared to him at once, most of whom Paul said were still alive. So hey, go talk to these guys. Go check this out. Uh, they dropped names of contemporary people through, throughout Acts and, and the Gospels who could corroborate this. Number seven, Jesus' own skeptical family believes. And if you don't believe in him before he's publicly you know, humiliated, tortured, beaten, spat on, and killed, why would you then change your tune to say, hey, this guy actually is living and I believe he is now God? That's a really crazy position to take. The mo one of the most powerful, though, is number eight, Jesus' own enemies believed in and died for him. We've done a lot of work. We just finished a series uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 written by a man named Paul. And this apostle, this, this guy who was chosen by God to go and preach to, uh, to the wider world than just the Jewish faith, started off persecuting and killing Christians for their belief that Jesus was the risen son of God who actually came to rescue and rule his chosen people. Why would you go from killing people to then actually being killed for the belief you killed them for? Very strange. 
Number nine, though, Jesus' church starts right away. And this is significant because there's no time for legend or myth or, or stories to kind of change and shift uh, to form. No, it starts right away. And more than that, number 10, it starts in a place that's hostile to it. You want to start up a religion? You want to start up a worldview? You want to start up something with a radical claim of a man coming back from the dead who claimed to be the son of God, come to save people from their sins? You don't do that in a place where he was already murdered, humiliated publicly. That's a very, that would be a terrible strategy, and yet it happens. It starts right away in an environment that's hostile, right there in Jerusalem where, where Jesus was killed. And then number 11, more than this, Jesus' church goes viral. It blows up. It doesn't just kind of eventually gain some traction. And we even read about in the book of Acts that, you know, thousands of people came to faith in this hostile environment right away based not on the death and burial, but on the fact that he was risen and seen. When we take this case file, then we end up with this equation. A, Jesus' followers sincerely believed he rose from the dead. B, Outside evidence supports this belief. And C, no opposing theories account for all of this evidence, which makes this belief the most reasonable that Jesus really came back from the dead. So you could pick apart maybe one of the 11, two of the 11, but the other, you know, nine or 10 collapse onto those and and, and defeat those arguments really quickly. And just this one case file from the box of history starts to help us realize, wow, if if Jesus really did rise from the dead, and if I don't have to shut my mind off to believe that I can love God with my mind, knowing that a past event now equips me with power for the present and a hope for the future. But there's more than just the box of history. There's lots of boxes. Another one of my favorites is the box of science. And this box is way heavier than we often uh, tend to think in in the Christian faith, the the science box. But let's just kind of cover some of the case files in in here, just just to kind of rapid fire some of these off. Now, these are overwhelming. These are large, and uh, I am not an expert in these, which is why we need to kind of go to some of the experts, Christian and non-Christian. But from the Bible itself, there's some testable claims from Romans 1 that the invisible attributes of God are clearly displayed in all that he's made his eternal power, his divine nature. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So what happens when we test these out? What happens when we bring out this box of evidence? Do we shut our mind off to this too? Or can we love God with our mind knowing that science might give us a cause and a confidence for our belief and our love of God? Well, let's let's highlight a couple of things. Number one, from our case files that the universe has a beginning. This is one of the most uh, crazy scientific uh, discoveries uh, that has been made in in recent history. Uh, There's philosophical, residual, theoretical, thermal, observational, quantitative evidence that it has a beginning. We can trace this, the timeline of this discovery back, uh, you know, many years. Uh, you could go back to 1916 where Albert Einstein applied his theory of relativity to the cosmos. Uh, his calculations suggested that the universe wasn't just eternally old and, and unchanging, but it pointed to a beginning. Moving into the 1920s, Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman used Einstein's theories to develop a mathematical model predicting that the universe was expanding which is significant because if it's expanding, it's got to be expanding from an originating point. 
By 1929, Edwin Hubble makes the most uh, significant scientific discovery of the 20th century by calculating that stars and galaxies were moving away from the Earth and they were picking up speed, showing that it has a beginning. 1978, physicists and astronomers Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson won a Nobel Prize for discovering the existence of cosmic background radiation, which lines up with the universe having an originating point full of tremendous heat, density, and expansion. You can look into astronomers like Fred Hoyle about the amount of helium in the universe being consistent. Uh, all of this stuff, all of these things, all of these variables that show us, okay, not only is there a beginning, but there had to have been somebody who started this thing. Because there's around 122 variables that would have, been, have to have been lined up in precise values in order for our universe to come into existence. Scientists say that if any one of those was off by even one part in a million millionth, matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, people, band rooms, pranks, where a kid puts you know, a picture of a guy in a, the staff room, washroom, urinal to be discovered six months later, right? None of that happens unless all these values, all these dials are dialed in. The universe has a beginning. That points to God, and we don't have to shut off our mind. Apologist Vince Vitale says at one point the universe didn't exist, and now it does. So what explains this change? What is this change like? We're led by science to posit an explanation, and it's hard to think of something better to explain it than God. You love science, you should love God. He's the one behind it. I'm gonna move quickly through this next couple from the science box, but all are really important. Number two, the universe is finely tuned, science shows us. The constants and proportions of things like strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, electromagnetic force, the force of gravity, these all have to exist in very specific ways in order for us to observe what we observe. Scientists like Stephen Hawking, cosmologist and physicist Leonard Susskind, they calculated that life wouldn't exist if the ratio of protons and electrons in the universe was different. Other things that where life wouldn't exist, life wouldn't exist if the ratio between the forces of electromagnetism and gravity changed. Life wouldn't exist if the Milky Way was a different shape, or if we were in a different position to other galaxies and cosmic clusters, or if the Earth was, wasn't in the spiral arm of this galaxy, or if the Milky Way was a different size. Life couldn't exist if the expansion rate of the universe was different to a microscopically small amount. Life couldn't exist if our sun was made of different matter, or if we had more than one sun, or if the age of our sun was different, or if the mass of our sun was different. We could talk about the ratio of oxygen, nitrogen, the, the position of the sun, the amount of planets in our solar system, the Earth's crust being a certain thickness, the Earth being right distance from the moon, and its particular size, and its particular rotation. Look, all of these things are pointing to the fact that oh, there must have been someone behind this to finely tune this. And when I study this, I go, I have a far greater amazement and love for God with my mind. Another big thing, a couple more from the science box, life appears from non-life. How did, how did life get here? How did things become living? Like at a cellular level, there needs to be a specific and complex combination of processes. You could talk about carbon atoms, you could talk about the formation of amino acids, nucleotide bases, blocks of protein, membranes, enzymes, DNA, RNA, the formation of cells, all this stuff in biochemistry. Like, like look, where does that come from? And when we start to dig into there, we go, man, I'm starting to love God even more because I'm seeing he's the best and only possible explanation that accounts for all of this data. 
A fourth thing from the science box. Biological organisms appear designed, and I wish we could just nerd out like crazy on this one. We could talk about the bacterial flagellum. We could talk about a bunch of different stuff. Why don't we talk about the human eye for a second? Similar to a camera, yet we can't produce a lot of what it can do. It's self-lubricating, self-repairing, self-cleaning. It converts images into electrical signals that are sent immediately to the brain. And the brain processes those signals. It makes adjustments. The lens, it's flexible like rubber, and it can quickly focus by changing its shape. Everywhere we turn our gaze, 12 separate muscles, six in each eye, move in perfect coordination for us to see the object we're looking at. I've heard this compared to a, you know, a marksman at a gun range with, with a pistol in each hand, shooting both guns at the same time and making a single hole. That's a, that's a crazy way that our, that our, that our eyes work. Even Charles Darwin himself, he didn't make a conclusion about God from this, but he conceded that to suppose that the eye, with all of its inimitable contrivances for adjusting focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, go Google that one sometime, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. And that's just the, that's just the human eye. Well, cat's eyes or insects, all of that. So when we let our mind, you know, when, we, when, we, when we're not afraid of these things, we start to love God even more. A fifth one that's really interesting to me that I wish we had more time to talk about is that consciousness emerged from unconscious matter. See, we can study each other's physical brains and all of what they look like, all of how they're shaped, but we can't know your personality or your feelings, or what you're thinking. We can't study those things, so we know we have consciousness. And consciousness requires a conscious mind to create it, wouldn't it? Just matter and the physical world can't create this. All of these things, you know, uh, the, one of the, the Oxford physicists that talked about, you know, the, the fine-tuning of the universe, talked about just the, the, the crazy ratio of, the, of the, the razor thinness of all that we see the amount of dials that would have to happen uh, in, in certain ways. And, and he said this, the fundamental, fundamental parameters of the universe show that values have to exist in razor-thin orders for life to exist. And the percentage difference you'd have to uh, have while maintaining the possibility of life, the way we observe it and study it, is one times 10 to the power of 10, again to the power of 123. I know numbers kind of get lost sometimes. Uh, Vince Vitale, a Christian apologist, puts it this way. If you were to take that number and you were to write it out, you would have to turn all of the matter in the universe into paper, and you still wouldn't have enough room to write all the zeros that follow that number. It's amazing. And what science will show us as we unpack that box is we can love God because he is a powerful God who cares about things at the cosmic level and the microscopic level. There's a third box that I want to finish off with today as we build this case, and it's the box of Scripture. Because we have history, we have science, but we also have the Bible that we hold in our hands and that we preach and teach and study here at church. So what happens when we open up this case file? Well, we could, we could dive into to a lot of different things, and in our time together, I wish we could do more. Here's just a couple in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter recounts this amazing experience he had where he saw Jesus transfigured, this glorious experience, arguably the most powerful encounter a human ever had with God up until that point in person. But he says this in 2 Peter 1. 
We had that. But we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe the Bible is God's word, but they use people to put it together. So why should we believe it's completely reliable and pay special attention to it? What happens when we unpack this box? Well, let me quickly give us eight things. Number one, the Bible has an unrivaled amount of manuscripts. So we, the, the way we have it, holding it here in English, that's not how it was originally written. It was written in different languages, on manuscripts, and we have a bunch of copies of those. Fift, over 5,600 copies just of the New Testament in its original language, which is unrivaled. The second place is Homer's Iliad with five to 600 copies. That's 5,000 copies less, and that's second place. The second thing we see is that the Bible's manuscripts are early manuscripts, meaning they were written close to the events they're describing. The Bible is, uh, at, at worst, at, at, at the, the worst case scenario for us is, is the writer John, biblical scholars say, where you know, he probably wrote some stuff down about 65 years after the fact. But for those of you who are older in this room, who are older than 65, you're probably going, well, I could tell a story or I could, I could recount details from something 65 years in the past. That wouldn't be a huge problem for me, especially in a culture that transmitted things uh, verbally and orally like that. Second place, compared to, to our, you know, at worst, 65 years with John, is writings about Alexander the Great from a guy named Plutarch, who wrote 425 to 450 years after. And we consider Alexander the Great to be a historical figure with credibility backing his story. Our manuscripts are early. The third thing is that these early manuscripts are traced to eyewitnesses. Uh, Gary Habermas uh, is a scholar who does a lot of work in this and, and details it really well. Uh, and, and what he talks about is that critics say, these are critics who don't believe the same gospel, who don't follow and know Jesus. They, these critics say our material is so early that the latest we could date it is within a year or two of the events happening. A year or two. And this is from our critics. There isn't time for legend or myth to be created. Number four, our manuscripts are incredibly consistent. We could go into a ton uh, about this. We can go into the work of a scholar uh, like Daryl Bach. Uh, for example, uh, there's 20,000 lines in the New Testament. Only 40 are in question. You're like, well, that seems like a, a lot. Well, no, because 0% of those 40 lines have to do with doctrine or belief. They're just about grammar and spelling. You compare that with second place, again, the Iliad, 15,600 lines, and 764 of them are in question. We have a very reliable document. Number five, our Bible lines up with historical events. Uh, we could go into the work of a guy named Nelson Glauk, uh, a renowned Jewish archaeologist who has said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. Number six, not only does it line up with historical events, it actually predicts them. You look into the coming of Jesus and all that was written in the Old Testament about where he'd be born, when he would be born, the type of death he would die, even by crucifixion, before crucifixion was even a thing. There was a, there was a seaport named Tyre in 580 BC, for example, and Ezekiel prophesied that this city would be pushed into the sea in Ezekiel 26, which almost happened 
300 years later. When Alexander the Great came and he wanted to conquer that city and overthrow it, and there was an island uh, city as part of it, and he couldn't get to the island because he didn't have a navy, so he's like, you know what, let's, let's build a land bridge, and he pushed the city into the water, into the sea. You can find countless stories like this. It predicts historical events, but number seven, and this is where it's really cool for us as we unpack teaching on Sunday mornings, the Bible is consistent in its teaching from start to finish. Amidst the incredible diversity of its authors, perspectives, cultures, circumstances, times, worldview, and literary genres, the Bible constitutes a unified song about redemption. These 66 books that make up one story about what God has done in Jesus to save you when you couldn't save yourself and bring you into relationship with him, but whereby you could love him with all of your capacity, mind included. And number eight, the Bible lines up with Christian experience. And we could go into the stories of life change through baptism, prayer, all these things we put to the test when we actually read and apply the Bible. So what do we do with all this then? We've got all this data. And you know, the, the thing is, is that you could take scripture, you could take the box of science, you could take uh, the box of history and stack it all up. And a couple of things could happen. The first of which is you could go, wow, I have a lot of reason to believe what I believe. I love how Apologetics Canada's Andy Steiger puts it. You know, faith for us, we were were saved by faith. We enter into a relationship with Jesus by belief. Uh, But he says our faith is not, what what it is, it's putting our trust in what we have good reason to trust in. Just these three things in the, in the very poorly uh, mapped out treatment I've done this morning and all that we've overlooked and all that we've left unsaid, all of that is reason and faith combined. We have great cause for worship. We have great confidence for our belief. But here's the second thing and the thing that concerns me more is that you could know all this. You could agree with all of this. You could memorize all of this. You could, even, you could even teach all of this and still not know God. There's a big difference between just stacking all this up and having it in your mind but never letting it get to your heart. And I'm concerned that a lot of us know a lot about God in this room but we don't actually know God. So where are we at? What do we do? Maybe that's you and you need, you need a place to wrestle out your doubts. Our God is inviting you to do that. Why don't we move from just agreeing with the facts of Christianity and move into activating our faith in the God of Christianity? And maybe you are here today and you're like, I, I do agree, I do believe all this, I have appropriated all that. Maybe what you need to do is continue to train yourself to explain this to a world that really needs to know this. And not just the world, by the way, actually us in church, we need to know this. We need to know how to explain it. We always need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. The hope that we have. Because a God who rose from the dead, we can love him with our mind because we've got a hope for a future, a security for the future, a, a power for now. A God who's backed up by science. We can trust, we can come to knowing that he has the power and the presence to help us. And a God backed up with scripture means we can trust what he says is what he will do. So may we know this, may we love God more with all of our capacity, not just from a place of emotion and affection, but also 
their eyes wide open, having faith that's built on reason, that corresponds to reality, that comes together and, and is coherent as a whole, so that we can follow Jesus' command with the power of the Spirit to love God with all of our heart and with all of our mind. Let's pray together that we would do this. Father, we love you. We thank you that we have good reasons for what we believe. That you are worthy of our love. You're worthy of our worship and that we can passionately worship you because we can authentically know you. Help us to know you better, follow you better for your glory and for the good of this church, the good of our families, the good of our city and our world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.